I'll turn to John 13. Join me there, John chapter 13. We continue in our study of the gospel according to John. John 13, starting in verse 31. In the upper room, Jesus with his disciples. The text says this, John 13, 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. There are many grand and glorious themes and doctrines in the Christian faith, like golden pillars in a massive temple of worship. They, they hold up the edifice of our faith in God, these themes. Themes and doctrines like mercy and grace and holiness and righteousness and justice and divine power and Faithfulness and truth and joy and peace and on and on we could go of themes running from Genesis to Revelation. It's a rare treat to, to find in one text such clear and deep teaching on two of those themes. That's what we find in our text for this morning, such clarity from our Lord about glory and love. Maybe two of the highest themes of all the ones that I just mentioned to you. What an Amazing text to lay before us glory and love. In just five verses, we have those profound truths laid out for us by Christ. And we're going to see that they're interdependent upon one another, meaning that, that God is glorified through the self-sacrificial love of his son for sinners. And his disciples are to, live, are to love like Jesus loved and thereby glorify God. So there's an interdependence of these grand themes they interact with, hold up one another, and help one another along. As you think about what it means to be a Christian and how it is that you let other people know that you are a Christian, there's lots of ways that people try to do this, right? There's t-shirts you can buy and wear with verses or catchy spiritual phrases put on them to let people know I am at least spiritual, if not Christian itself. There's Cross necklaces you can buy, you can get a Greek word tattooed on your forearm and let everyone know that you know more Greek than they do, at least one more word than they do. You can put verses on plaques and hang them in your house, you can post religious things on social media or any number of ways you can let people know, I am a Christian. But none of those things have to be true if you are a Christian. So if you are a Christian, you don't have to do any of those things, and many of you just sighed a huge sigh of relief that you don't have to get... Greek tattooed on your arm. A, you don't have to learn it. B, you don't have to get a tattoo. None of those things you have to do to be a Christian, right? But what we find in our text this morning are two realities that will mark our lives as genuine believers in Christ. If we've been rescued from the penalty and the power of our sin through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have been born from above with a life given to us by God. We've been brought out from the deadness and the wickedness of our own sinfulness and, and given life in the kingdom of his beloved son, then these things should be true to some degree in our lives. As I read the text this morning, trust you saw the two themes. The, the first theme found in verses 31 and 32, the glory of God, namely the glory of God seen in Christ. And then verses 33 to 35, you saw the love that Jesus expressed. Now he calls his disciples to live in that love. To help you get your bearings again as we come into John 13, remember that we're in the upper room. Jesus has just interacted with Judas Iscariot in a way that forced Judas's hand. Judas was not planning to betray Jesus at that hour. He had the plan hatched in his mind he had been working with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities. He had been prodded along by Satan to accomplish this betrayal and turn Jesus over and seek his death. But Jesus made sure, as we saw last week, that it happened then on Thursday night at that appointed hour. 
And what we find in our text as Jesus talks about that is that when he left, something was sprung into motion. And Jesus knows his glorification is around the corner. Knowing that Judas left, Jesus understands that he has precious few moments. It will take a while for him to to go, Judas, to go and get a hearing with the Jewish authorities, get them to agree, now's the time, get them to send their soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. He knows, Jesus knows that's going to take a while, but not too long. He has precious few minutes with his 11 faithful disciples. He knows that within 12 hours he will be mocked and beaten and mistried, called a blasphemer and condemned to die for something he's never done. Within 15 hours, he'll be hanging on a wooden cross, a Roman cross on a hill called Golgotha as he gives his life for his sheep. Within 20 hours, he will be dead. His lifeless, cold body will be put into a borrowed tomb, crushed under the weight of God's wrath for sinners just like you and me. And so in this moment, he does not do what you and I would do, which would be to turn into ourselves, knowing that within 20 hours, you're, you're going to face the worst of the worst and die. Rather, he turns outward and gives his final precious moments to preparing his disciples. He knows the depths of what's coming. They do not. He's tried to tell them they don't get it. He's tried to explain to them what to expect. They don't grasp all the, the realities of it. And so he prepares them yet again. He speaks to them of the truth of his soon coming death. He wants them to know how to think about their Messiah dying on a Roman cross. But more than that, he points them past that to when his death leading to his resurrection, leading ultimately to his ascension, will bring about his departure from them. He'll say more about that in chapters 14 through 16, that classic text at the beginning of chapter 14, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me where I am. That text, he's talking about his ascension, but he's preparing them for his absence. And as he prepares them, he speaks truth to them. In our text, he speaks to them the truth about his death and then the truth about their relationship to one another in light of his leaving them. He teaches them to glory in the cross. That's his death. And he teaches them to give themselves to love one another. That's their relationship with each other when he's gone. Judas has left the room, and so now Jesus feels freedom to open up and get deeply personal with those he knows are truly his. He knows he's no longer throwing pearls before swine, as it were. All of these men are his own, and now he enters into a depth and a level of deep, personal, emotional conversation with these men and lays truth before them. And he does so with these two themes, glory and love. To teach them about his death, he teaches them about glory. To teach them about his soon departure, he teaches them about love. And all of it says, true disciples will glory in the cross and will give themselves to love one another. Consider that first one. True disciples will glory in the cross. He starts with glory, namely the glory of the triune God evidenced in this hour, the hour of Christ's death. Don't miss the connection between the first part of verse 31 and the second part of verse 31. Judas left, first part, and then Jesus said, second part, now is the Son of Man glorified. The betrayal by Judas was going to spring into action the, the reality of the soon death of Jesus. And this he names as his glorification. How do we know that when Jesus speaks of his glorification, he's speaking of his death? Well, John told us in verse 1 of chapter 13, when he said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, what hour? His hour to depart out of this world to the Father. That departure would come through his death. So he knew that when he speaks of glorification, he's thinking of his condemnation to crucifixion. In just a few short hours from now, these 11 men will be watching their Savior arrested. They will hear tales of him being mocked and beaten. They will stand, some of them, in the distance when he, in his disfigured state, is hung on a Roman cross and passerbys cry out their 
mocking phrases of shame to their Lord. Before all that happens, when they hear that happen, they're going to tuck tail and run, right? They're going to lick their wounds and try to figure this out. What is going on right now? But before all that happens, Jesus wants them to know, listen, this is my glory, not my shame. It's going to look to you like everything is wrong. It's going to look to you like complete and total shame. It's going to look to you like punishment and disgrace and humiliation, and and it is all those things. But Jesus doesn't talk about it in those terms. This is not his punishment. This is not his shame. This is not his humiliation. He, He humbled himself. This is his glory. He is glorified through the giving of his life on the cross for us. So here Jesus in verse 31 and 32 is glorying in the cross before it ever happens. Before it's accomplished, he is is glorying in that which it will do. He says the Son of Man is glorified by this coming hour. And then he says God is glorified in the Son of Man. And then he says that God will also glorify the Son of Man in himself, in all of this, and he will do all of that at once. It's a mouthful. What is Jesus talking about? The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in the Son of Man, and God glorifies the Son of Man in himself, and God will do all that all at once. What is Jesus saying here? What is he pointing the disciples and us to? Well, obviously, before his darkest hour, he wants them to know that this death is the pinnacle expression of the glory of God in redemptive history. This is the the fulcrum of of all of God's plans and workings to bring about the redemption of mankind for the eternal glory of the triune God. Jesus uses the title Son of Man. He's used that multiple times throughout John's Gospel. It's the last time he'll use the title Son of Man. I've made the case to you back in chapter 1 or chapter 2 that he does that because they don't know what it means. They know, the, the, as Jews, they know the title Son of Man means something messianic. They know it's the Messiah. It's a title for the Messiah. But they haven't filled it with a bunch of content yet like they have Son of David or Son of God. They don't really know what he means when he says, I am the Son of Man. At best, they have in their mind what, what God said to Daniel in Daniel 7. When the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man all authority and power in the universe. And so at least they know something about this guy, this son of man who's coming has all authority and all power. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they speak of the son of man, they often use it in reference to his suffering. It's often in connection to his coming death on the cross, his coming trial before the Sanhedrin and all that that entails. And so here in John, we have these things combined. As he finishes out his his Uh, narrative about Jesus. He calls him son of man one last time to let you know he is the Messiah and he is going to suffer and in his suffering he is going to prove his glory. He's going to make known the magnificence of his character through the cross of Calvary. What does all that mean? Well, for God to be glorified simply means that the, the splendor the magnificence, the the greatness, the the vast difference between him and us, the transcendence as it were, how far above us he is, how much better and greater and higher he is from us. When he is glorified, that is seen and revealed. Some aspect of his creation grasps the reality of the godness of God. And they glorify him by identifying it, by praising him for it, by responding in obedience to him because of his glory. God is glorified when he is understood to be the highly exalted above all God that he is. He's glorified when he accomplishes something in which his his greatness His transcendence, his magnificence is seen so clearly in ways that you can't deny it. And so Jesus is saying at the cross, that is going to happen. The perfections of God, 
the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the immutability of God, the transcendence of God is going to be seen through the cross work of his son. Well, what do we see at the cross? Just think with me for a minute. Let's do a mental exercise. You're like, I've been doing that since you started. Mental exercise, trying to follow along. I get it. Do another one with me. How is it that God is glorified through the cross? What in the cross of Calvary do we see of the character and the greatness and the majesty of God? Well, let's say what Scripture says. Let's not make this up. Let's just say what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul points us to the wisdom and the power of God made known in the cross of Christ. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is Stronger than men. You want to understand something of the wisdom and the power of God. Look to Calvary. Gaze upon what came together in the sinless son laying down his life as a sacrifice for his sheep. How else is God glorified through Calvary? It is a display, a unique display of the righteousness of God. It is the glorious expression of of the rightness of the character of God, of the commitment he has to his own standard. Paul speaks of this in Romans 3, 24 to 26. He says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a satisfaction of wrath by the blood of Jesus to be received by faith. And he goes on. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If the cross does not happen and if God lets one soul into his eternal kingdom to enjoy his peace and presence forever, then God is not just nor righteous. He would have to tweak his standard. He would have to adjust his law to let any sinner enter into his presence apart from the shed blood of his son. It is at the cross we see the righteousness of God in all of its glory. We also see at the cross the love of God. This is Romans 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know God loves you? Christ died for you. How do you know God is love? Because he sent forth his son to be the propitiation of your sins. To atone for for you so you could have peace with God. That's how God loves you. That's how God's love is seen by you. In Galatians 3, verse 13, we see that not only is the love of God displayed in the cross, but also the holiness and the justice of God are displayed at the cross. I put them together because they're, they're so similar, holiness and justice of God. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that's justice, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Because God is holy, holding to his standard of righteousness, completely different in separation from sin than we are, he had to provide his own way for you to be freed from the curse of your sin. 
And the only way to do that was through the, the curse of the tree. And the only one eligible to do that was his own son. So you want to know more of the holiness of God and the, the justice of God, how much he cares about sin and righteousness and how, how deadly serious he is to pour out his wrath on sinners, look no further than his own son hanging on Calvary's tree. He also reveals on Calvary's tree his own faithfulness. Displays his complete otherliness from us in showing his faithfulness. Of any numbers of promises I could point you to, I chose Genesis 3 and verse 15. We're in the garden and under the curse to the serpent. He says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head or crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The first promise in scripture of a coming redeemer who would crush Satan and all sin, all of his opponents. In the cross, this is where this happens. The head of the serpent is crushed. The hour of the power of darkness, as Luke 23 calls it, is, is brought to the culmination of the Son of Light giving his life as a ransom for all so that we do not have to be in the kingdom of darkness any longer but can be brought into the kingdom of light by his beloved Son. This is the faithfulness of God. He promised it. He produced it. And he made it happen on Calvary's cross. In this work of Christ, we see the perfections of God brought together in one event as the bright display of his glory. And all of it glorifies God. It also glorifies Jesus as the Son of Man because it's the fulfillment of his purpose. So it glorifies God, but it also glorifies Jesus as the Son of Man because it, it brings to an end that which he came to do. It's the finish line of his obedience. It's the completion of his task. He, in full obedience, was led to the cross. This is where Philippians 2 verse 8 ends, right? As the suffering servant who humbled himself as servant to all, he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, what's the next thing? God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth will bow the knee and confess with the tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How does that happen? How do verses 9 through 11 happen? How does the glory of the Son get guaranteed for all of eternity? How can you read in Revelation 4 and Revelation 7 of, of heaven's company declaring worthy is the Lamb who is slain? How does that happen if not because of and through the cross? The Son of Man is glorified through His atoning work for us. Worthy is the Lamb. The Son of Man is glorified in the cross. And Jesus tells us that God glorifies the Son of Man at once. At once. What does that mean? It means that God glorifies Jesus immediately. Chrysostom, the preacher they called Golden Mouth in the 4th century, said that this was pointing to all the supernatural signs that happened around Jesus when he was being crucified. Think about it. What other death in human history has had the things happening that happened when Jesus died? Pitch blackness taking over what should have been the middle brightest point of the day. The earth being shaken so violently that rocks split. The thick temple curtain separating mankind from the presence of God torn from top to bottom by a supernatural act. Graves opened and many saints arising from the dead appearing after Jesus' resurrection. So much so that even a, a pagan unbeliever, the Roman centurion, can see all these things happening as he watches over the death of Jesus. And what is his response? Even he gets it. Truly, this man was the Son of God. There's something unique about this guy if all this stuff is going on. You see, that's, that's God testifying 
in the very death of Jesus that he is different than anyone else. That his death is more significant and accomplishing eternally more important matters than anyone else's death has ever done. And by this, the Son of Man is glorified immediately. And then God validates that reality when he raises Jesus from the dead on the third day according to his prophetic word. No doubt Jesus had died. No doubt his dead body lay in the tomb. No doubt Sunday morning it's not there. No doubt no one went in and got it. No doubt it's anywhere else because he appeared to hundreds of witnesses to make known God has validated my work. That which I have told you I was going to do, I have done. That which God sent me to do, I have done. And now I am glorified as the crucified, buried, resurrected, and soon ascending Son of Man. The Son of Man is glorified at once. You see, the cross proclaims the glory of God. This is why Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 1.31, after that text I just read earlier, he tells us to boast in the Lord. Boast in the reality of your righteousness and your justification and your peace being guaranteed by Jesus. Boast in the Lord. This is why in Galatians 6, a letter in which Paul is addressing people who have reliance upon their own flesh to earn them peace with God, the whole Jesus plus gospel. Yeah, Jesus did great things, we preached that gospel, but you also need to do something. So the Galatian heresy Paul wrote to address, called it anathema. If anyone preaches another gospel, whether me or an angel from heaven, they should be condemned by God, damned by God, anathematized. At the end of that book, this is why he says, I don't glory in any part of my own fleshly attainments like the Judaizers do. Rather, I boast only in the cross of Christ. He says, by which I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. In other words, Paul saw in the cross work of Jesus not only his only hope for eternal life, but his only hope for sanctified living. If he's going to be an ongoing, useful servant to his king of kings, he has to have the cross. For it is in the cross work of Jesus that the world is dead to him. And Paul says, I am dead to the world. So Jesus says to his 11 apostles in the upper room, what looks like my shame is actually the epicenter of my glory. Therefore, as my true disciples, you must glory in my cross. The world will call it foolishness and ridiculousness and shame and humiliation. We, as followers of Jesus, must say, no, this is our only hope. This is our greatest joy, our highest glory, a Savior who died for us. We must not apologize for the horrors of Calvary. We must not grow squeamish when the world tells us it is foolish to have a Savior who had to die in order to rescue us. Rather, we must see in the cross of Christ the endless beams of the glory of God brightly displaying its multifaceted reality. Like a rainbow prism that, a rainbow that comes into a prism and sheds its light everywhere else. May we see in the cross the manifestation of of God's manifold glory. We ought never tire to hear again of the crosswork of Jesus. You and I are forgetful people. We're prone to the rut of self-reliance. We're prone to the rut of glorying in what we can accomplish. We're prone to the rut of taking joy in earthly things. We're prone to the rut of, of thinking in the here and now and living for just tomorrow. We're prone in, to fall into the rut of hoping in hopeless things. And we ought never tire of hearing of the correction of the cross. Digging deeper and thinking harder about the atonement provided for us by Jesus there. Glorying in the cross to move past a man-centered approach. It often makes the redemption of God provided for us about me instead of about him. Rather, glorying in the cross in a way that makes much of God at every turn. 
As Paul would say in Romans eleven thirty three, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory be to him forevermore. We ought glory in the cross and that we live lives molded by the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. As the cross presses itself down upon our soul, may we respond in humble faith, crushed under the weight of the reality of being servants of Christ. May we rejoice to be able to follow him in a cross-shaped life because we glory in a Savior who died for us. We ought glory in the cross and that we see our temporal trials as working for us an eternal weight of glory. These hard momentary afflictions working for us a a magnitude of joy that one day we'll get to experience and, and be a part of for all of eternity beyond our imagination. Like Christ, looking to the joy set before us, enduring the suffering and the shame. We will glory in the cross. That we will know that if he loved us in this way, we ought also to love one another with this kind of love. Knowing that we will never be separated from his love for us. True disciples glory in the cross. They also give themselves to love one another. This is what Jesus tells them in verses 33 to 35. As he prepares them for his soon departure at his ascension, he's saying, listen, I'm going to go, but you're going to stay. You can't go with me. My, my absence will be permanent in your lifetime at least. I'm coming again and I'll, I'll bring you back to me as he'll say in chapter 14, but there's things you must do. There's truths that must shape you while I'm gone. That's what he says in verses 33 to 35. This is not disconnected from the glory of 31 to 32. That's the foundation. I'm going to be glorified in this coming hour and because I'm glorified, you should follow me in my sacrifice of love so that you can share in my glory. I know that's true because that's exactly how the epistles talk about your livelihood as a follower of Jesus. You're to follow Jesus through the suffering to share in the exaltation, the glory. This is James 4. This is 1 Peter 5. The humble are exalted by God. He uses the term little children the first and only time in the gospel that Jesus addresses his disciples as little children and that is what he means. Little kids. Listen up, little kids. Imagine a movie scene. Let's just say it's the American frontier, the old wild, wild west when maybe the Oregon Trail. Some family has come from the East Coast. The mom has died in transit. It's a dad with, with kids. And, and they set up shop somewhere in the frontier on the prairie land. And they're miles from anybody. And the dad says, listen, I have to go to the next village, the next town. I've got to get supplies for the winter. And I'm going to be gone. And I need to talk to you. And as he sits them down, he, he has an intense and emotion-filled conversation. Realizing it might be his last from the human standpoint. And he's got things to tell them that they need to listen up to. And in his fatherly care for them, he says, listen, kids, listen up. That's similar to what Jesus is doing here. He knows he's about to leave. He's about to depart. And and they're going to have to fend for themselves. And and that dad, by the way, when he leaves, or as as he gets ready to leave, he says to them, listen, while I'm gone, and my, my presence is not here to provide for you, protect you, and comfort you, Fill that void with love for one another. Don't fight like you normally do. I'm not going to be here to, se- to separate you and figure it out. Don't be selfish. Don't fight for the best food. Love one another. When I'm gone, love each other. This is similar to our Lord's expression in verses 33 to 35. He's about to depart. He says, you cannot go with me. Most immediately, he's speaking about his departure through death on the cross. Ultimately, he's speaking about his ascension. By the way, can you just stop and glory for a minute in your Savior? That he is going to go to the cross alone. No one can go with him. No no one can be by his side to endure the mistrial and the, the lack of integrity and justice that will be brought about on his head. No one can stand by him when he's 
when he's mocked, when he's spit upon, when his beard is ripped out of his face. No, none of his disciples will be there to put their arm around him and say, Jesus, I love you. I'm so sorry. Nobody will be there when he carries the beam of his cross through Jerusalem and, and stumbles along the way because of the weakness of his own flesh having been beaten with the cat of nine tails to within an inch of his life. None of his disciples can be there to say, you can do it, be faithful, endure. No, he has to go through this by himself. There's not another man on the planet nor in all of human history who can go to do this act of love. And so he went alone into the dark corridor of suffering and death. What a savior. He speaks more fully of his departure after his resurrection. He's going to tell them a lot more, chapters 14 through 16, but here he gives them kind of a foreshadowing, a snippet, if you will. He says, just like I told the Jews in chapter 7 and 8 that I'm going and you're going to look for me, but you're not going to find me and you can't come there. He now says to them, I'm, I'm leaving and you'll look for me, but you won't find me. But you won't be without each other. I won't be here, but you have one another. So I give you a new commandment, he says. Follow this commandment in my absence. This is of utmost priority for you. I won't be here to tell you this again. I'll send my spirit, chapter 16, and he'll remind you of all that I told you, but I won't be here. And Listen, this is what you need to do when I'm gone. You need to love one another just as I have loved you. Now I ask you, what's new about this commandment? You're probably ahead of me already. You're thinking that way, right? What's new about this? A new commandment to love one another just as Christ loved us. Well, the Mosaic Law told us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Deuteronomy 6. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. So this idea of loving others is not new to these disciples. But what is new is the example of love and therefore the extent of this love. So the example is the example of Christ himself. The extent is the giving of self out of love for others. So no longer under Mosaic laws, it just love, your, love others as you love yourself. Now it is love others beyond yourself. More than yourself. The extent goes further. Give yourself out of love for one another, just as I have done and will do for you, Jesus says. Give yourself sacrificially for one another. This is in line with how they've been loved by the Savior. They've been given this example, a, a new example in Christ, and a new extent to his love. And by the power of his salvation, he's saying to them, you now are known and marked by this love. You've entered into the door of kingdom through the door of love. You've been indelibly imprinted by this love. You've been born from above because of this love. Your new nature given to you by God is, is formed by and with this love. It's in its DNA. You've been shaped by my cross work, he says. Forever marked, forever reshaped by that love shown. As you think about Jesus' life and example and you try to understand what this love is, what this new example, new commandment is. Several things rose to the top for me as I thought through that. The first would be to the reality of the humility of this love. We saw that in the foot washing of Jesus, right? Earlier in chapter 13, he humbled himself and expressed love to them in humility. Love dies in pride. Love grows in the seedbed of a humble heart one that does not think more highly of myself than of others, one that gives myself willingly thinking of others more than I think of myself, that kind of humility will love others to this extent. As you think of Jesus' love, you also think of the individuality. I just expressed that to you. Jesus got up and washed their feet by himself, doing this act of love in a way that only he could do. He's headed for the cross by himself. He was going to a place where they could not go. He's going to do a thing they could not do. And, and in this, he was going to love them well and love them to the end. 
And he lays before you the reality that if you're going to love like Jesus, you've got to do this. There's an individual element to the reality of your love as a disciple of Christ. It's not a cooperative effort in which we're trying to reach to some level of love in the body and trying to hit a mark every month. You know, this this quotient is is the number we're aiming for, this many acts of love. And and if we hit it as a body, ding, 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 we get a party. No, that's not how this works. It's not a cooperative effort in that sense. It's individual. Like Jesus, you have to give yourself. You can't give someone else to love someone else, as fun as that would be. You have to love like Jesus loved as his disciple. Not only is it individual, but it's also then obviously sacrificial. So I think of his humility, I think of his individuality, and I think of Jesus' sacrifice. It cost him something. It cost him deeply and dearly. He gave himself completely out of love to meet our eternal need, laying down his life so that you might have life. He set aside his human concerns and his self-oriented desires so that he could faithfully love us to the end. And now he says to his disciples of every age, do like I have done. Love one another like that. You probably know this already, but John's gospel leads then into John's epistle, 1 John. Same author, same emphases, actually. Particularly the emphasis of love. He takes what we read in John 13, 34 to 35, and as you read through the letter of 1 John, he comes often to this idea of loving your brothers. As you read through the text of 1 John, you see very clearly two ideas that that if you are born from above, you will love. It's, It's part of your nature. It's who you are now in Christ. But he doesn't just stop there and say, you know, that should be true of you, So let it be true. No, because it's true of you, as followers of Christ, he says, love one another. He makes the case. He he evaluates you with this love, and then he calls you more and more to it. 1 John 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, speaking of God, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. If you're going to say you're in him, how do you let others know that you're actually in him? How do you prove to yourself and to other Christians that you're actually in Christ? Wear a t-shirt? Post on social media? Get a bumper sticker for your car? No, you follow the commands of our Lord, namely, to love God and love one another. First John 2, 9 through 10, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. First John 3, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, for he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. They're counter- Opposed. They can't be together, born of God and constantly sinning. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Ears perk up. Listen, lean in, right? How do we know? Well, John's going to tell you. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that, we have, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. A few verses later, verse 16, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Apparently the temptations in the first century are the same as the temptations in the 21st century. Easy to say, oh yeah, I love people. I love the church. I love my brother. I love my sister. But if you're in Christ, you actually love. You actually give yourself sacrificially in love for one another. 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love 
one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So if you know the love of God for you, then you know the love you are being called to, and in fact, you can't help but then show that love to others. You notice that's not a quantitative thing, as though you can somehow do this much love in your relationships with one another and then you prove that you're in Christ. We, we want that, right? We want the graph and the chart and, and 10 acts of love a day mean I'm in Christ. Nine, I haven't quite made it yet. That's what we want. That's not what the, guy, the gospel gives us. That's not what the word gives us. The word gives us the reality that God is love and if you know God, you know love. You know what it looks like. And in everything about you, you have the opportunity to to walk in that love and to give that love to others. Sacrificing self. This is the lifeblood of relationships in the home, the lifeblood of relationships in the church. This is why the world is the mess it is in, in part. There's much to say here, but rejecting God, they've rejected God's way, which is love, self-sacrifice. That's not what you see on the news headlines. You see endless expressions of self-interest in the news. And what does that produce? As James 4 so clearly tells us, wars and murders among us. That's what self-interest always produces. But that's not our way. We, as the body of Christ, are to love one another as we've been loved by Christ. To combine this with an illustration that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, equating the church of Christ to the body, the human body, and how each of us are different parts within the body, gifted by the Spirit to, to accomplish our parts and our roles so that the body itself is whole and healthy and functioning. Just think about your physical body for a moment. How is it that you know that your body is healthy and how is it that your parts relate to one another? Well, they inherently know their function, right? And they know that their function is inherently guided by serving the other parts. Just think about that for a minute. All of your parts serve other parts so that by the part they can make a whole. So your lungs take in oxygen to break it down and distribute it to the bloodstream to supply all the parts, to keep all the cells alive. Your heart pumps the the blood to keep other parts alive with the oxygen the the lungs supply. The stomach and the whole digestive tract takes in food and, and breaks it down so that each cell can be nourished and keep on living. The stomach's not down there just rejoicing and Yay, new food for me. This is awesome. Your mouth maybe does, but your stomach doesn't as much. It's just there to serve its role. It's been designed by God to do its thing, and that's what it does. And it does it well, and it keeps you alive. It serves the other parts within the body. Your eyes are on the lookout, keeping you from danger, informing the rest of you what's going on around you. Your nose is the passageway of oxygen and the first line of defense in your immune system to keep bad things out of your body. Your brain functions beyond your comprehension as the command center of all of these things, telling everybody what to do and keeping it all in line. Serving all of the parts. What happens when one of those parts stops working to serve the rest of the parts? Well, immediate chaos. Now we've got something going wrong in one part that all of the rest of the parts are affected by. And the whole body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, works together to help that one part get healthy so that the whole can be healthy again. Now carry that over to the body of Christ. The parallels are obvious, but I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to make obvious things obvious. Each part of the body is to be marked by sacrificial love to serve one another. And to the level that that happens within the body, the body is healthy and well-functioning. But if within the body, one of the parts stands up and says, you know what, this is about me. The rest of you are here for me. Serve me, do my bidding, do my thing, and then disease ensues and chaos and warring among the members happens and the body 
is sick and not as useful as it could be. Beloved, Jesus says this is the mark of the true Christian. To love like he has loved. He says it to the extent that if we do this, all will know that we are his disciples. What an astounding promise by our Lord. Don't you love the simplicity of the gospel and its work of being a follower of Christ? It doesn't say to be known as a follower of Christ, you have to have a master's of divinity degree at the seminary level. It doesn't say to be known as a follower of Christ, you have to have served for this many days in this role in the body. It doesn't say to be known as a a member of the body of Christ, as a follower of Jesus, that you, you have to quote the whole New Testament by memory. How how simple that the weakest and the poorest among us can keep this command as evidence of life of Christ in us to love one another. So simple and so profound. And this then brings joy to our Savior. He's glorified himself by his loving sacrifice. God has glorified him in so doing and now God has eternally glorified the Son of Man for that love, and now as his followers, we have the privilege of bringing constant glory to our Savior by walking in this love. So friend, is this true of you? Are you glorying in the cross of Christ, and are you giving yourselves to love one another? I can answer that from my vantage point for most of you. I don't know all of what goes on in all of your lives, thankfully. But oh, how I rejoice in the mercy and the grace of Christ among our church family. I see evidence of this every day, probably. That might be overstatement. But almost every day, I have the privilege of watching you as the body of Christ glory in the cross and love one another sacrificially. That is evidence of God's work in you and all praise be to him God has taught you how to do that, therefore God should be praised. But as Paul said to the Thessalonians, you know how to do it, but do it more and more. As the writer of Hebrews said to his church, listen, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together so you can provoke one another to love and good deeds. And as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus and Thessalonica, so I now pray for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you multiply and increase our love for one another? Would you make us to be people who live in this love? And in so doing, as we glory in the cross, would you cause us to increase and abound in this love so that others would see and know that we are yours? Would you do this work for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.